Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Erjan. Today, I'm joined by Ahmed Kanna, Amelie Lehonar, and Neha Vora. Ahmed Kanna is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of the Pacific. Amelie Lehonar is sociologist and researcher at the Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique. And Neha Vora is Associate Professor of Sociology and Anthropology at Lafayette College. We'll be talking about their book, Beyond Exception, New Interpretations of the Arabian Peninsula, published recently by Cornell University Press. Thank you very much, Ahmed, Amelie, and Neha for joining us today. Um, So to start off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your collaboration that led to this book? Sure. Um, I can take that one. Uh, So... What started the whole cur- the kernel that started the book was Ahmed and I were on a on a panel at a conference where we were both presenting on um, different aspects of our research and in those research presentations some of the things that came up were the forms of white privilege that circulate in the Gulf and what it meant for us personally in terms of our subject position to do the research and we got a lot of pushback from certain members of the audience, especially white Americans who had lived in the Gulf. So we, we started talking about this and we started talking about what it means to be uh, people of color in American academia and also what it means to be doing research in the Gulf from our different perspectives. So that led to a conference paper um, that is on doing fieldwork in the Gulf and our ref- we used that conference paper to reflect on our early fieldwork experiences. So that is what you'll see in the second chapter of this book. And then we wanted to bring somebody else on too to have to kind of round out the conversation. And because Amelie's work is such a great fit, we we reached out to Amelie, and then the three of us started having a conversation. And that is what led to um, the structure of the book the way that it is now. That's wonderful to hear. And I love that you use whiteness as an analytic in the book throughout, um, which is something that we don't see often, um, especially in, you know, studies that address um, the particular region. Uh, And, you know, my next question sort of builds on that. Um, I was wondering what is specifically at stake in thinking through whiteness and thinking through the Gulf exceptionalism, and how did you approach the project of de-exceptionalizing the Arabian Peninsula in the book? Okay, hello, this is Ahmed Kanna. Um, 
So I, I'll take on this one. Uh, the, to address the question of uh, Gulf exceptionalism more um, broadly, um, basically our approach was to um, was twofold. We looked uh, very carefully through the critique of categories such as whiteness, um, but also I would argue colonialism, imperialism, um, class, and other uh, sort of modes of power. Uh, we, we use those lenses to basically review our, especially our early forays into the region, our early sort of graduate uh, research, and our first um, early career uh, engagements with the region. So we did a, I guess the, the term for this in anthropology is reflexivity. We drew on the, you know, the literature and the approach of reflexivity um, in anthropology and in sociology to look critically at how often unconscious structures of um, structures of feeling, power, racialization, and colonialism still inform the methodology and the um, the literature that are made about, in particular, the Gulf. And I think, speaking for myself, but I think also for Amelie and Neha probably could echo this, um, we found that there was a sort of the Gulf, it was easy for scholars to make superficial and highly sort of orientalizing claims about the Gulf, even many years or even decades after such approaches were um, were rejected in other uh, post-colonial regions. So that was our first approach. Our second approach was basically to look at and to sort of support and foreground other research being done um, on the region by scholars who we think also shared um, our de-exceptionalizing uh, critical approach. So our first, uh, our inter- introductory chapter really tries to tries to cite carefully as much of this research as possible. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there for now. That's wonderful to know. Um, and you know, I want to dig a little bit into the question of knowledge production, especially in ethnography. Uh, which I think your book does a great job at addressing. Um, and, you know, as part of developing a critique of ethnography, you take up the arrival trope in ethnographic writing, um, especially in accounts of the Gulf. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell our listeners how you think through this trope, both collectively and in your individual works. Um, so I think that that's uh, also um, to me, or we we sort of divided up the questions, and I think uh, I'll take this one on. But I think also Emily and Neha, if, if you guys want to chime in, obviously feel free to do that. So I mean, I think arrival is this is this classic sort of um, this literary device in ethnographic writing that um, was <clears throat> was sort of reproduced uncritically for a long time until about the 90s when um, when there was this new sort of turn towards looking at ethnographic writing as a as a genre of writing and what how it, how it is structured how is it organized and what um, what how does it construct 
how does it contribute to the construction of its object of study? So, so for me, the, the, the trope of arrival or thinking about arrival critically um, goes, goes beyond and, in fact, is, is not even at all about literary, literal arriving in a place, but it's rather about how a certain literary category or conceit um, constructs an object of analysis. And what I mean more concretely by that is that there's this older idea that, you know, you go from your quote-unquote home culture, your native culture, quote-unquote, to this other culture, and that once you sort of arrive in, in that place, you are confronted with otherness and cultural difference and these sort of very simplistic binary ideas of cultural difference. And we drew a lot on the critique of this work that was happening, um, I think, around the time when we were training in graduate school um, and, and after to try to emphasize as much as possible that this trope of arrival and other um, similar ideas of otherness tend to erase, I mean, they very much do erase interconnectedness and the ways in which even the Gulf as a region is a construction that to which imperial logics and neoliberalism and capitalism have contributed a lot. And so I think, uh, you know, for me, this idea of arrival really sort of reifies uh, and create fabricates ideas of difference where uh, we really should be um, talking about interconnection. And I think that that's actually very much connected to the idea of de-exceptionalization that we're uh, trying to argue for. Absolutely. Um, and I was wondering if you could individually tell us a little bit about how you know this critique emerged from your own experiences as you conducted fieldwork. I can, I can start on that. Um, I think that you know, this was part of the conversations that we had very early on when we were planning the book. For me, I was coming in um, wanting to do, you know, having read all of the South Asian diaspora literature that I could get my hands on and wanting to do a classic, like, diasporic ethnographic study. And, you know, I expected to find, you know, even even though it's, it's so odd to me now to think about it, um, all of the things that I read about the Gulf focused on uh, Kaliji's and on Kaliji culture. And when immigrants were mentioned, they were only mentioned in passing and they were always mentioned as outsiders. But I knew um, from having my own family networks and, and um, growing up in an Indian diaspora community that there are lots of people uh, who live in, in a place like Dubai. So I thought I was going to find for my first visit in Dubai, I thought it was like, oh, you're going to land in Dubai and then you're going to have to go find the little India, right? And if anyone who's been to Dubai, there is no little India. The whole thing is little India, right? Like that's, that's basically one of the arguments in my first book. I had to kind of um, undo a lot of the presumptions of who belongs and who, who naturally belongs to a place like Dubai um, in order to actually get to the arguments and even get to the actual research before I even got to the arguments, right? Um, so it was, it's kind of one of the things that we're looking at is how the literature that we read before we go to the field, the kinds of categories and vocabularies that we naturalize, how those, in fact, can impede us from um, seeing what's there. 
Amelie, would you like to go next? Uh, yeah, thank you. Hi. Um, yes, for me, I think it was also a gradual process because, um, uh, yes, yeah, so for me, it was a gradual process because um, I was really trained as a specialist of like the Arab world and my master's program was, was actually called like Muslim world. So, um, yeah, and so I've studied Arabic and so on. So I, I think I was... When I began my PhD, I was really in the in the typical uh, imagination of uh, what fieldwork is and how it's different from um, my home society and so on. So that was my point of departure. And so, so my my PhD was about uh, gender and uh, the lifestyles of young women in Saudi Arabia, in Riyadh. Um, so. I don't think it was a very exceptionalist framework since I decided not to, you know, focus on like oppression or um, like the very typical questions that people want to talk about when you talk about women in Saudi Arabia, uh, such as, I don't know, polygyny, uh, veil and so on. But at the same time, in the end, I, I realized that some aspects were problematic, such as like um, the fact of like focusing only on Saudi women and not uh, taking into account non-Saudi women, for instance, while like one third of uh, Riyadh's population is non-Saudi. So it was the first like self-criticism. And afterwards, I think it came from also the ways in which my work was interpreted in in France and the, the ways in which I realized like the what's at stake also when you talk about the Gulf in other contexts and how like whatever you say, um, you always get the same questions and comments. And so, so it was also like, I was like, okay, what do I really want to do that now? <laughs> So, so that was kind of the question. And then, yes, so then I decided also to work on like Western passport holders. It was also a reaction to the to the people I met when I was doing my fieldwork actually in Riyadh, like the, and the discourses they had, the statues they had, the lifestyles they had, the like the gender norms they um embodied and the whiteness they embodied and so on so it was also like from the field work that I, I wanted to to focus on this and then I, I decided to change and to, to work on Dubai but basically that was the the process that's wonderful how about you Ahmed yeah no these are these are really uh I, I echo everything that uh, Neha and Amelie said um I mean and and to add my own perspective to that it's almost it's so difficult to begin uh, to try to disentangle the problematic assumptions that that I brought to the field initially that I had inherited from um, the literature or the dominant sort of trends in the literature. I don't want to imply that all the literature was bad, not at all, or that it was all problematic. A lot of it was quite good, um, but I guess for me, there's a couple of um, a couple of uh, notes I would make. One is that, you know, my own background is Iraqi and I grew up partly in the Gulf. Uh, we lived in Kuwait uh, when I was young to, or like 
just before adolescence. And at that time, we moved to the, the United States. Um, so being from Iraq uh, and of an Iraqi family, and there is a big Iraqi community in the Gulf as well, in, in the Emirates and in, Ku- in Kuwait until the, the Gulf War. Um, that's a pretty distinct community. Um, and I, during my fieldwork, I was interacting a lot with Iraqis. And uh, there is this complicated relationship that Iraqis have to the Gulf. Uh, part of it is, you know, the, the idea that Iraq is like this ancient civilization. It's Mesopotamia. It's, it's you know, cultured and, and so on and so on and so on. And one of the sort of binaries that Iraqis sometimes make, often make, is to the Gulf, actually. Like the Khalijis, you know, they're seen as less cultured and, and so on. Nouveau riche, you know. Uh, so there was that angle. That was definitely happening way before I went to, to grad school and studied the region. Um, the other part of it was very similar to to what um, what Neha and uh, Emily were talking about. The kinds of um, the literature, what it left out was um, a lot of um, a lot of the complexity of the region, but also what it tended to reinforce was that there was this kind of binary or like uh, sort of distinctions between Gulf nationals and non-nationals, especially um, people from South Asia or Iran or um, other parts of the global South, that um, these were these hard and hard distinctions that were sort of, um, always reproduced every day and sort of indexed through the national dress and so on. And, you know, what you find is actually people are borrowing culturally from each other all the time. And, uh, you know, Emirati food is largely Indian food, you know, and, and East African food, for example. Um, so, I mean, that's just one, one small example. I could cite many, many others. I also became very interested in the, you know, politics of imperialism and capitalism. And I think without understanding without de-exceptionalizing the Gulf, you really can't understand modern capitalism or finance capital um, or even, you know, uh, the idea that the, the United States, for example, being an oil state, you know, we talk about the Gulf as being oil states, but we don't talk about the U.S. as a being an oil state. Why don't we do that? Um, and so on. I could go on, but um, but I'll stop there. Yeah, this is very productive to think with because one main thing that you do throughout the book is to locate the Gulf within global processes, but also, you know, you do commercially uh, locate global processes within the Gulf. Uh, And, you know, as I read the book, it came across to me as a methodology of sorts uh, for de-exceptionalizing the region. Um, so what does connection making do epistemologically for you, um, both, you know, as an overarching, um, theoretical framework, but also in your individual works? So, um, yeah, this is Neha. I, you know, Amelie was referring before to the same questions come up, um, from lay people and also from fellow academics when they hear that you're doing the Gulf and, they, they will have read your your piece, which is challenging an exceptionalizing framework. And yet the questions that I get are, can you drive in Qatar? Do you have to wear a headscarf? What about all of the slave labor? Um, and it just, it gets so redundant that these, these uh, 
for these orientalist stereotypes to talk about Kaliji's and then this idea that um, my immigrants are all exploited, hyper exploited, um, and completely without agency. And Ahmed talks about this in terms of um, how it erases worker uh, protests that happen quite often in, in the Gulf. And at the time when I, those questions first started coming to me was when I was finishing up my dissertation and I was living in Southern California. I found it so ironic that I could get questions about slave labor in the Gulf when I'm looking at the, the people who are tending the gardens on the university campus, right? And all of the ways that Southern California relies upon um, hyper-exploited um, Mexican labor, right? And, and so from the very beginning, I, I would kind of push back by giving an example here. Um, like, oh, you know, we can't really talk about uh, the kafala system. If we're talking about the kafala system, why aren't we talking about the H-1B system, right? But that framework of just like giving a, but look over here, is not, I think, as effective as what we started to develop, I think, individually and in conversation, which is, it's not that this is happening over here and similar thing is happening over there. It's that these are actually part of larger global processes in terms of how immigration has been redefined to be, you know, about crudely about labor and about um, how governments are shifting their laws so that there's less opportunities for naturalization. Um, the kinds of xenophobic rhetoric are, I mean, we've seen clearly in the last few years how right-wing uh, um, rhetoric around the world is building on each, it's each other, right? How they're bouncing off of each other. Um, so that kind of brought me more to looking at, you can't look at a diasporic population in one part of the world, especially Indian diasporas, because there's such a long history of these middlemen networks um, that are transnational. You can't really look at one place without looking at the connections around the world and how Indian labor is kind of constructed uh, in, and the streams of Indian labor and where where people go and how they are trained to go there and how their own co-ethnics are bringing them there and profiting off of them. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where I got to in terms of my own work and thinking about um, connections as a way to, uh, to de-exceptionalize. Um, Meha, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about these connections in higher education. I'm very glad you brought up the university. And in the book, you talk about these connections um, to think about the American university as an archive. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about that. Sure. So in my, in my more recent book, Teach for Arabia, I'm looking at American branch campuses in Qatar. And, you know, the, what pushed me into the book project itself was actually the fact that a lot of the kids, the second generation um, children of Indian immigrants in Dubai had started going to these branch campuses because they were proliferating in the UAE. They started prol proliferating in the UAE in the um, early to mid 2000s. So originally I wanted to know, is this a way of cementing belonging even further because before they would have to leave to go to college um, either in their home country or in a third destination. At the same time, the kinds of conversations that were being had in the U.S. academia, I had just been hired at Texas A&M University in Texas, 
which has a branch campus in Qatar. It was just kismet that that worked out. Um, But all of those questions were about the very same kinds of tropes that we've just talked about. Well, what does it mean to go to this authoritarian place and uh, where, you know, you can't be gay and women are oppressed and um, and there's no freedom of speech. Like, how are we going to have a branch campus there? And this is not to diminish that, like, some of those things are issues, right? But what it is is to point out the kinds of mythologies that that constructs about what the American university in the United States is, which is supposedly a place free of sexism, homophobia. Um, I lived in Texas at the time, so I found it very funny because you can't, you couldn't marry as a same sex person in Texas either. So I don't really, like, I was, I was astonished to see these kinds of critiques coming out of like, um, you know, the top notch famous people in like Ivy League colleges and stuff like that. Um, So part of that project was to utilize that discourse to, to not just point a lens at like what's happening in the branch campuses and how that gets occluded if we're only looking at it as, oh, this is blanket illiberalism, right? Or blanket neoliberalism. Um, But also to kind of show how these performances of of what I call like liberal piety, right? Um, How those also keep us from seeing the very illiberal things that that historically and today um, constitute what we consider the American university. And I love how um, Amedi and Ahmed's work speak to each other, uh, taking up you know different sides of labor uh, in Dubai or Dubai and Riyadh in Amelie's case. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Also to come back on the connection uh, aspects, because I think, in fact, um, like... I was really um, inspired by by the now like classical text writing against culture by Laila Boulourod, and in it, like she talks about connections as, as a way to to write against culture. And so, for me, I think it was one of the reasons why I wanted to to work on a multinational after um, after my PhD. So I did a field work in a, in a, in a multinational bank in, in Riyadh, working on the nationalization of jobs. And so I interviewed many people, but actually what's, um, like what I really kept in the final um, articles about it was uh, especially how a man talked about the, like the, like hiring women and why we hire Saudi women and so on, because Saudi women are hired in the name of like the nationalization of jobs and and what kind of stereotypes they had on Saudi women and on Saudi men and so on. And so I was comparing uh, the discourses by uh, especially like uh, French and European managers in the bank and also the discourses by like... Saudi managers, male managers, I mean, about Saudi women. So it was a first way to, to study connections. And and it was um, like I was very interested in studying how exceptionalist discourses, especially like the, the European managers' exceptionalist discourses have like influence actually, like who can work and who can make a career in the bank and so on. 
and how, for instance, they they um, they promote a specific um, form of femininity in the bank, like women that are unveiled and so on, and that are very comfortable to work uh, with men and so on, and how like how they talk about you know so-called westernized women, and it's like it's as if it was like a skill to be westernized for women. And so it's it's a discourse that really, um, uh, like, I think merits, merits a, a, a reflection, like this kind of um, exceptionalist discourse and the influence it has. So I think it's also one point we wanted to, to highlight in the book. It's not only about, you know, uh, studying stereotypes and the production of discourses and, and so on, but we also wanted to, to, to shed light on the influence of these discourses and how we can study them in the field. Like, it's not only the academic production or... Uh, the the media production on the Gulf that is exceptionalist. It's actually also some like many inhabitants of the Gulf who have like uh, exceptionalist representations of their own society and so on. And so we wanted also to 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 study this. And like of course, uh, like when you study Western residents in the Gulf, it's it's something very strong, actually. So it was very strong in Riyadh, and I could uh, study the influence of this discourse in the bank. And it was also very strong in Dubai. But the um, like the Western passport holders in Dubai are a bit different from those who live in Riyadh. And I think it's more diverse. And so I also met um, people that had more critical discourses on exceptionalism, actually, and especially like people, for instance, people who who came like who who had been uh, discriminated against in France and who in the Gulf uh, felt that they were more respected and recognized that than like in France. So they were more like, you know, comparing between the two systems rather than saying like, um, okay, Dubai is awful and France is the model. And this was also something very much related, related with whiteness because um, like white upper class expatriates tended to have much more exceptionalist representations than people from like working class or racialized background uh, in France. So I think exceptionalism also depends on like your social position and um, yeah, so like the the belief in like democracy and justice in Western societies also depends, of course, like on your position, like whether you you really benefit from it or not. Ahmed, did you want to chime in? Uh, yes, uh, and I apologize if my uh, if I got cut out. Um, my internet is is kind of um, weak here. Uh, so, uh, no, I think both comments by Neha and Emily were really great. Um, just to echo part of um, what um, what Emily was just saying, I, what I take from what what uh, 
part of what Emily, I think, is saying, at least that's resonating with my own thinking, is how we're not just trying to do an analysis of stereotypes or representations and orientalism, quote unquote, which personally to me is not not interesting at all. Um, but what I liked about what Emily said is that these actually have a material impact in the world. They, they are deployed uh, in projects of reproducing power or challenging power um, and constituting um, class uh, class and status and, and so on. And, and I think that in particular you know, where where I sort of approach uh, the, the question of exceptionalism and its critique um, is in relation to, you know, class struggles in the region. Um, I think, you know, if you look at, for example, the question of labor, as, as, as Neha put it r- really well, when you look at when Western, um, especially like people coming from a liberal Western perspective, who themselves tend to be quite well-to-do in the, in the U.S. or in Europe, talking about slave labor in the Gulf and talking about uh, the Gulf as if it's like this, well, this exceptional zone where it's uh, apparently to many Westerners, the Gulf is the only place where there's m- major labor exploitation um, and racial uh, based on sort of racial or ethnic distinctions, uh, what, what Cedric Robinson called racial capitalism, right? Um, and I think what, what actually looking at the Gulf from a de-exceptionalizing framework makes you realize that uh, these processes are pretty damn similar in the U.S., or if not exactly the same, they're based in the same sort of material logics of, um, of you know, basically making certain people do the terrible, I don't want to use curse words here, but, you know, do do the basic sort of shit work of society. Um, that is not happening only in the Gulf. That's happening everywhere. And in particular, in this moment where I think you see, since the neoliberal period, um, the use of racial dis- distinctions and ethnic distinctions and gendered distinctions as a way of um, distributing vulnerability and harm and privilege in society, and and as a way of distributing sort of desirable and less desirable forms of uh, labor becomes much more intensified because there is, whether you talk about Western so-called democracies or bourgeois democracies uh, more accurately, or you talk about uh, regimes which are, you know, uh, admittedly authoritarian regimes in the, in the, in the Gulf, um, there is no poll uh, politically that um, defends the um, the rights of workers, the rights of vulnerable communities anymore. That collapsed at the end of the Cold War. Um, and I think that if you look at the history of the Gulf, you see the same thing. There were movements of the left, you know, there were movements of that that were workers' movements um, and, and even socialist and communist movements in, in the region. Um and at least movements for self-determination, whether politically of the left or the center-left, they were destroyed, um, and partly, ma- mainly because uh, Western colonial powers uh, uh, were supporting local reactionary um, political movements to do that. That's a very similar process to what's happening in the, you know, the so-called liberal West. By the way, there's echoes, and I think they're they're similar, not accidentally, but they're similar because they're part of the same project. Um, 
you know, the project of uh, securing the the sort of imperial interests of the U.S. and Britain, um, in particular, in the region throughout the 20th century. So, so um, that was a very sort of broad-ranging comment, and I hope it was uh, uh, concrete and clear. Thanks. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I love that you, all of you, have brought out the fact that the exceptionalizing knowledge in the Gulf is not just something that's about, you know, area studies or regional studies, but it sheds light on um, different parts of the world as well. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on the, you know, decolonial um, project that comes with this task. It's very ambitious also to to say that we want to decolonize knowledge about the Gulf. So it's more um, like if I look at at how Gulf studies were in the 90s and what what existed, like what books existed when when I began my PhD. So it was in 2005. I'm like, okay, we like. People have worked, you know, like there, there has been many shifts in the field. And I think like in the 90s and beginning of, of uh, years, um, 2000, it was really focused on like uh, oil and political Islam. And it was really like the focus when you, when we talk about the, the Gulf very much um, or, or about like traditions, tribes and so on. Um, but at the same time, like decolonizing, for instance, would mean that um, that we take into account much more that like the production on the Gulf by people who actually live in the Gulf, and and it's um, like I think it's a difficult question because like social science in the Gulf is not necessarily very much. Um, visible like the, the books that are produced in the gulf and the, the works like very, very often they, they never become books they are actually like you know um, dissertations and so on um, and i think that it would be something we we would really need to do like to to think about this um like these politics of like knowledge and what what works we take into account so we also tried to 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 suggest like that there are many works and sometimes it's not social science it's also like novels and other cultural productions that actually are very valuable to questioning exceptionalist representations and that also um talk about subjects that are sometimes almost um, not exist, non-existing in research, like such as like uh, the legacy of, of slavery, of African slavery in the Gulf, or um, sexuality issues, um, migration issues, etc. So we should also maybe like... Um, broaden our scope of like works that we take into account, I think. But I'm sure that Ahmed and Nea will have other ideas <laughs> about this. 
And I wanted to go back to a point that all of you made, uh, which seems to be in the genesis of your work, uh, which is that, you know, your ambition to take on this project comes from not only your fieldwork or writing, but also from um, the reactions you've gotten in academic spaces like conferences and workshops um, and could you tell us a little bit more about how these academic spaces contribute to golf exceptionalism um, I can begin um, yeah so I think that there is a term that you had underlined in, in your written questions that was the structural misunderstandings and it's um, I think it was present in the first version of the paper by uh, Nea and Ahmed. And I think it's a very in interesting term because, um, like, when, when you, uh, it's something that I felt when I, when I was talking about my research, like how people misunderstood what I said and how whatever I said, it was very difficult, like, to, um yeah to convince the people that um i'm not you know like for instance i i'm not saying that there is no uh exploitation in the gulf but i'm just saying that uh we don't necessarily need exceptionalist terms to talk about it and we can uh, look at various aspects and um there are also like middle classes from other countries than from the West and the and Gulf nationals and so on. So um, I thought it was very interesting to to talk about these misunderstandings as structural because they really say something about um, about um, yeah what like the representations that people need to have about the Gulf actually and so about the the academic um, milieu about the Gulf. Um, like for me, it's it's a bit complicated to answer the question because when I did, I, I think that during my PhD, I was really um, like the, this, like Gulf studies was really uh, many, yeah, many people were like many white men working on political Islam and oil. And like when I was participating in a conference on Saudi Arabia, I was always in this last panel about society, called society, you know, and where we talk about migrants, women, and these kind of subjects. But it was not like, you know, the, the strategic panel on oil or the, the one on political Islam. And then I think in France, I... Like it's very small fields, so so I kind of work more with people who are doing like post-colonial feminist sociology, who study gender and race and so on, but in other contexts. And I also work with some colleagues who work on the Gulf, but with other perspectives. But there are few people, so this is what what I can say for for the moment. I think. I think. Um... One of the con conversations that Ahmed and I had when we were first writing that conference paper was the the different forms of legibility of expertise, right? That, um, you know, for me being of South Asian origin, it I don't really register as a Middle East studies expert. So, 
if you look at the places where my first book on Dubai circulates, it circulates more and is assigned more in South Asia studies, diaspora studies, migration studies courses um, versus Ahmed's book, right? Um, and yes, some of that has to do with the fact that I'm focusing on immigration, but then Ahmed is too. Um, and, and we talk about how, uh, you know, being Arab American versus South Asian American um, provides particular kinds of openings and also particular kinds of closings and, and in terms of what it means to be an academic what it means to be a Middle East studies scholar, how, how do we circulate in conference settings and job talks in, um, you know, in, in a lot of different spaces of academia. Hello, can you hear me? Sorry, I, I hit the wrong unmute button. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, uh, well, that echo is pretty, is pretty uh, hellacious. Um, uh, no, I think both, yeah, uh, Emily and, and Neha, what they're saying is spot on. Um, from my from my perspective, I mean, I saw exactly what Neha was, was referring to, which is the way in which at least the American, the U.S. American Academy, um, you know, structures its um, expertise and regionalizes it, regionalizes it in very, um, very sort of rigid ways. Uh, so uh, she's absolutely right that my my work is you know our books are really overlapping with each other our work uh, shares so much and yet the the ways in which they are uh, re- received um, by our colleagues are they're received by almost two distinct audiences um, so you know I don't know if that's necessarily a, a bad or good thing I think that's just the reality that we're trying to sort of analyze and and, and look at. Um, in terms of my own work, I mean, I think that even beyond Middle East studies, what, what sort of it, my, my early work on Dubai was someone in Middle East studies called it, uh, that said it was suffering from an edifice complex. That is, it was about buildings and urban spaces more than people. And, um, you know, because if you study like the Middle East, you have to study like uh, people going to mosques and people like eating, I don't know, hummus or whatever. And, and uh, so my own first book, especially, and still this happens to me all the time, um, is really read by urbanists, architects um, in, in design schools, w- which is OK. You know, I, I don't mind that. Um, I've gotten some of my best and nicest feedback from um, you know, design and architecture students and professors in in the in the region in the Gulf. So, um, so I think that uh, there are there are certain def, def, like what uh, Neha is saying is is definitely um, true about the structures of perception uh, of these texts and of, of our work of our expertise. Uh, so, yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing uh, these experiences with us. Um, And lastly, echoing your book, I want to end on a note of hope and possibility with regards to academia. And so what are some of the decolonializing possibilities that we can work towards? Thinking about being an academic has been co-writing. And this experience was just like, fabulous like my best academic experience of like it didn't even feel like work quite honestly like I don't know how this book materialized it's like I had fun doing it um and you know we're in three different time zones like and um 
I, I feel like collaborative work and not having these kinds of like, you know, diva ego, co- like complexes and, 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 you know, valuing people for their contribution rather than like the name of the university on their, on their like badge at the conference or, or whether they have gotten their degree yet or not, I think is, is one place where I, I feel I can make a contribution, especially, but of course that contribution requires the kinds of problematic things that we're bringing up, right? It's because I'm post tenure. It's because, you know, I work in a liberal arts, uh, context where you're allowed to kind of experiment with the scholarship that you do that, that I can do this project and have it, you know, circulate. Like, I mean, let's be real. This book is circulating the way it's circulating because the three of us have established ourselves in, in particular kinds of ways. If it was three graduate students, it wouldn't have the same cachet. Right. So for me, it's also about, uh, I've been co-writing with a graduate student at, at university of Wisconsin. And I find that to be such a great learning opportunity for me. Um, so these were some of the things that we were thinking about when we were um, writing both the introduction and the conclusion of the book. Like, how do we highlight, how do we utilize our position of power in the academy, whatever, however limited it is, you know, and we do talk about that, um, to highlight the kinds of uh, projects and voices that aren't getting enough attention. So um, people from the region, graduate students, uh, people who are not necessarily considered your typical experts in in the field um, yeah all right well thank you very much Ahmed Amini and Neha for joining us and sharing your insights uh, my name is Aliza Arjan this discussion of beyond exception new interpretations of the Arabian Peninsula published by the Cornell University Press in 2020 is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.